The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Over the past few weeks, our, past, our teaching pastors have introduced us to some of the men and women of faith whose lives and ministries have shaped how we as a church live and work in our society today. I am very excited that we have another opportunity to learn from a great man of our Christian faith, but also of our culture's social conscience. Someone whose life work has resulted in what we consider to be regular human rights today, but back in his lifetime was tantamount to a social revolution. This man is arguably the most successful social reformer in the history of the world. Today, we will be learning from the life of William Wilberforce. Let's begin by going back to Clapham, the suburb in London where his memory is still preserved in the church where he worshiped back in the 1700s. Hello, Ecclesia Houston. Greetings from Holy Trinity Clapham in sunny London. Well, it's vaguely sunny anyway. Uh, My name's Jago Wynne, and I am the rector of this church. A rector's just sort of an English way of saying senior pastor. Now, I believe that this church, HTC, this church, it has an exciting future, but certainly it has an inspiring past. And it has an inspiring past above all because of this man. Come and see this blue plaque. Uh, This man is William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a member of this church around 1800, and him and his friends, uh, they were known as the Clapham sect. And they worshipped here at HTC, and they were at the forefront of of the abolition of the slave trade around 1800. This church, HTC, it was built in 1776. And by 1800, the church was absolutely rammed with people hearing the good news about Jesus. And what I love about Wilberforce was that everything that Wilberforce did flowed out of his love for Jesus. Not just the abolition of the slave trade, but setting up mission agencies, stopping cruelty to animals, encouraging Bibles to be distributed, and much, much more. It was all an overflow of his love for Jesus. Well, that's a bit of a visual context, setting the life for Wilberforce. But let me paint you more of a word picture of the personal and the religious and the cultural context of his time. In England in the 18th century, being serious about one's faith was acceptable for the lower class, but for Wilberforce and most of the elites, anyone who took God seriously was scorned as a Methodist or an enthusiast. These were terms of derision in those days much like the term Bible beater or fundamentalist of today. When Wilberforce was a young boy, his father died, and he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle, who, unbeknownst to his mother and grandfather, were devout, influential Methodists. People such as John Newton would regularly visit that home. Newton was the former slave trade captain who had been converted to the Christian faith and eventually gave up the slave trade completely, 
and we know him to be the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. He became a spiritual father to William Wilberforce. But by the time Wilberforce was sent to school at Cambridge at the age of 16, he had unfortunately backslid into the perfect picture of sophisticated worldliness. When he graduated from Cambridge, he had decided to try for a seat in Parliament and was indeed elected to the Parliament soon after his 20th birthday. He quickly became one of the most powerful and popular members of Parliament and the elite society of that day. When he was 24, he traveled to France and got to meet the 77-year-old Benjamin Franklin one of the founding fathers of the United States, who was the lone voice at that stage against slavery in the United States. Then in 1784, on another journey to France and then on to Italy for a holiday, was gonna take many weeks of travel, Wilberforce chose as his travel companion a man who was known to be one of the smartest minds of the day. His name was Isaac Milner. He was the Locasian professor at Cambridge, a position that Isaac Newton had once held and was more recently filled by Stephen Hawking. As the miles passed, it became clear to Wilberforce that this genius with whom he shared his carriage was something of a closet Methodist. As far as Wilberforce was concerned, this was awful news. If he had known this beforehand, in all likelihood, he would have chosen a different travel companion. And after miles and miles of inevitable theological discussion, Wilberforce came to believe with his whole mind what he had been certain was false that the God of the scriptures existed and that the scriptures were truth itself. And as such, he returned to London with a serious dilemma. He knew that he couldn't re-enter his former life professing the things that he had now come to believe as he would become a laughingstock of the elite society. So for weeks on end, he remained in a self-imposed isolation, with no idea how to reconcile what he had come to believe about God with his previous life. And his newfound and growing faith had become so central to him that he thought he would perhaps have to retreat from everything he knew and enter a monastery or the priesthood. In the words of one biographer, it was all tremendously inconvenient. This period of his conversion is what he has come to refer to as the great change. There were many other changes in his life over the next one to two years. Some were superficial, such as the really bold decision to resign his membership from all five of the exclusive gentlemen's clubs he belonged to, who were known for their excessive gambling and drunkenness activities he felt were no longer appropriate for him. The difficult decision for Wilberforce, though, was where to draw the line. What things should he walk away from 
And what things did God want him to remain in? Of highest concern was whether or not he should leave the dirty world of politics. This decision consumed his thoughts for weeks and months, and eventually he decided to go and visit his old friend, John Newton, who encouraged Wilberforce that God might be preparing him for such a time as this, to remain a serious Christian in the hostile climate, something that would take incredible courage. After their conversation, Newton wrote the following to his friend. I hope the Lord will make him a blessing, both as a Christian and a statesman. How seldom do these characters coincide, but they are not incompatible. And so Wilberforce vowed that he would take his faith into the world of politics and serve God there with his gifts. How exactly was he going to go about it? He prayed and he asked God to lead him. And less than two years later, he wrote the following in his diary. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. The first great object is the one for which he is so well known. A number of abolitionists realized that they must have a champion representing them in parliament, and Wilberforce came to accept that position. There is hardly a soul alive today who isn't horrified at the very idea of slavery. However, in the era of Wilberforce, it was as accepted as birth and marriage and death. The second great great object isn't referring to what we now know as manners, but instead refers to the reformation of morality or culture. The terrible slave trade was only one of the social evils running rampant at that time. His second great object referred to the larger attempt to confront the host of other social problems, including but not limited to child labor, alcoholism, which contributed to almost every other problem, sexual trafficking of women. 25% of single women in London at that time were prostitutes, and their average age was 16 years. Animal, and, uh, uh, animal cruelty. There were public hangings and sometimes public dissections just for entertainment. People were put to death for the smallest offenses. The most obvious sign of Wilberforce's conversion was the way that he now looked at everything. He saw the world through God's eyes, but he lived in a culture where almost no one else did. The words of Galatians 3.28 had become impossible to ignore. It makes no difference whether you are a Jew or a Greek, a slave or a free man, a man or a woman, because in Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king, you are all one. In 1807, after 18 years and 11 failed attempts at passing the bill to abolish the slave trade, the following historical moment occurred. 
Slave Trade Act. The unamended bill calling for the abolition of the slave trade throughout the entire British Empire. Nose to the left, 16. Eyes to the right, 283. Abolition of the slave trade to be passed. Next, they said about abolishing slavery in the British Empire altogether. And in 1833, a further 26 years later, that was achieved. Wilberforce heard this great news on the last of his conscious days and he died three days later. The slave trade and slavery itself had been abolished in the British Empire, and the idea of helping those less fortunate than oneself had taken hold. The task of Wilberforce, the suppression of the slave trade, and the reformation of manners seemed impossible. So how was he going to go about reaching these two great objects? I want to offer four suggestions for why Wilberforce was the force that he was, and hopefully in naming those, invite us into considering how we too can be agents for good in today's society. Firstly, power and influence. A couple of weeks ago, Sean Palmer, through examining the life of Henry Noun, brought the countercultural challenge that we are to be a people who chase love and not power, and how the pursuit of power can be incredibly destructive. And that got me thinking about power, and although the pursuit of it is so unhealthy, some people have power bestowed upon them whether it be earned as a result of their hard work, giving them titles and authorities over others, such as CEOs or managers or teachers or parents, or if it's a power that's handed to them as a result of their heritage, such as in the case of royalty or wealthy families. Others might not consider themselves to be powerful at all, <clears throat> but they do have influence. You all know people who, when they walk into the room, because of their physical strength or their beauty or their reputation, they instigate a palpable change in the atmosphere. Wilberforce was a combination of both power and influence. He'd come from a line of wealth and prestige, but he was a phenomenally gifted and able man in his own right and as such, worked up into an incredibly powerful government position. In his book, Playing God, Andy Crouch talks about power being a gift that in too many cases has been diminished and destroyed by sin. But it is still a gift rooted in creation and closely tied to image-bearing 
the unique role that human beings play in representing the Creator God in the midst of creation. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we read, God said, now let us conceive a new creation, humanity, made in our image, fashioned according to our likeness, and let us grant them authority over all the earth, the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the domesticated animals and the small creeping creatures on the earth. So God did just that. He created humanity in his image, created them male and female. Then God blessed them and gave them this directive, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth. I make you trustees of my estate, so care for my creation and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that roams across the earth. In acknowledging this incredible honor, Crouch says the following, power is for flourishing. When power is used well, people and the whole cosmos come more alive to what they were meant to be. And flourishing is the test of power. When Wilberforce exercised his power and influence, it resulted in the flourishing of a society and those over whom that society had influence. Do those of us that bear power look around and see fruit of that power to be undeniably described as flourishing? When Wilberforce came face to face with amazing grace, he wrestled with the question as to whether he should reject his position of power in government and rather spend the rest of his life in full-time service of God and the church. In the 18th century, these were seen to be mutually exclusive. This dilemma is brilliantly portrayed in this scene from the movie Amazing Grace. When you reach the plantation, they put irons to the fire and do this to let you know that you no longer belong to God, but to a man. Mr. Wilberforce, we understand you're having problems choosing whether to do the work of God or the work of a political activist. We humbly suggest that you can do both. Can we do both? There are people who are very clearly called by God to serve as pastors or as missionaries or as monks or in some other full-time Christian capacity, and that is indeed a high calling. But over and over again, those very people remind us that as followers of Christ, we belong to a priesthood of all believers, and each individual needs to decide and not be judged by the rest of us how that works out in their day-to-day -day lives. To get really personal here, I wanna tell you about my own battle with this. I met my husband Dave at our church and at the time he was studying geophysics as well as leading the church youth group. He used most of his vacation time to lead mission trips 
to African rural communities. And while at university, he also did a qualification in Christian missions in the event that God might open up a door for him on the mission field. If so, he would be willing and equipped to step into that role. However, he instead felt God leading him to apply for and accept a role working for an international oil and gas company. He's been in that company now for 22 years. Every year, his influence and power increases in the new roles he steps into. And he asked God to confirm if this is where he would have him. And every year, God reconfirms that calling. Until I began working on this sermon and studying the life of William Wilberforce, I was one of those who sometimes judged Dave for his decision. Surely God had places for more good in the mission field in the Middle East. But as in the case of William Wilberforce, could God not do both? Because of the positions God has given Dave, we've been able to live alongside people hungry for Christ in countries such as Iran and India and even here in the USA and influence individuals and communities in ways we never would have been able to if he had walked away from that divine appointment over his life. Where do you and I have power and influence that also brings about flourishing? That's exactly where we need to be hard at work. Secondly, purpose. Wilberforce was of the firm belief that it was God Almighty who had set these two objects before him and that the battle was his. Wilberforce only needed to be obedient. This work took its toll on Wilberforce. Perpetual illness, even threats and countless defeats but the certainty that this was God's work and his leading were often the only glimmers of hope in the battles that raged around him. Wilberforce wrote the following in his prayer diary. I resolve to endeavor henceforth to live more for the glory of God and the good of my fellow creatures. That was why he worked to abolish the slave trade. That was why he set up the Bible Society. That was why he established the Animal Anti-Cruelty League and was actually part of 69 other societies that worked against abuse. He did these things because of a concern for the glory of God and the good of humans. His passion to do social good was not separated from his belief and trust in God and his desire to bring God glory. Thirdly, perseverance. In Galatians 6, verse 9 to 10, we read the following. So let us not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us, in the community of faith. Long haul is a concept that seems to be becoming 
increasingly less and less appealing. It sounds boring, limiting, exhausting, monotonous, mundane, predictable. Long-haul flights, marathons, lifetime careers, one partner for life. All of these words are increasingly what make up many people's worst-case scenario for their one life being lived well. If something becomes difficult, any resistance is met, we throw in the towel. We might even throw a nice piece of Christian jargon at it, such as, well, God's closing that door. The idea that if a door closes, maybe God will provide the power and the courage and the strength and the companionship to kick at it until it comes crashing down is often furthest from our minds particularly in the area of things closest to God's heart, like ending injustice. For Wilberforce, this battle to achieve his two great objects came after the slamming of doors too numerous to recount here today. Opposition in and out of parliament, social ridicule, chronic illness, death of his children, bankruptcy, these are just a few of the doors that were slammed in the face of Wilberforce and his contemporaries. It took more than four decades to kick down the door of slave trading and ultimately slavery in the British Empire, and with it coming down to usher in this new way of thinking and engaging with humanity that is more reflective of how God sees humanity. He persevered, and he lived to see the fruits of his influence and commitment to the cause. We applaud him. We breathe a sigh of relief because somebody has finally made it illegal to abuse humans and animals. We thank God for people such as Wilberforce. But we can't rest on his laurels. We don't have to take our head out of the sand for very long at all to discover that slavery is still in existence today. In some measures, we can hardly even fathom. I recently had the opportunity to join the group that went to Mexico City to witness a small part of the reality of human trafficking there, often in girls as young as nine years old. Work unfinished remains, and the invitation to some of us sitting here today is to carry that baton, stamping out all forms of slavery for this next stretch. Wilberforce was instrument, instrumental in vanquishing the mindset that made slavery acceptable, a fundamental shift in human consciousness. But who of I will use our influence and our power to join the fight alongside the modern-day anti-slavery activists. If you feel that I am talking to you directly right now, then I am. Take this as confirmation, and as soon as you leave this building, go and find out how to grab that baton and give it all you've got to bring it a few paces closer to its inevitable demise even if it takes the rest of your lifetime. 
But it's not just in the area of human trafficking that God needs his people to commit to the long haul. If we just open our eyes to the injustices all around us, whether they be the unjust treatment of a particular race or age group or sexual orientation at work, in the line at the coffee shop, online, at school, in the sports teams we belong to, wherever we have influence, can we commit to seeing that particular injustice being brought down? Even if it takes the long route, even if we get lumped into the group that others whisper about us, she's really taking things a bit too far. Over the last month, I've had the opportunity to be serving a part-time capacity here on the staff at Ecclesia. And the area that I've invested most of my energy in is the outreach ministry. Manny has overseen this ministry for the past 10 plus years, and he has walked along some of the poorest, most hurting members of our community. He is now on a much needed sabbatical, and in his absence, I get to help with some of the administrative work that he's responsible for. Manny organizes the weekly Sunday lunch meals, Simple Feast, the monthly Harmony House barbecue event, and events such as next Friday's day after Thanksgiving feast. He tirelessly and often sacrificially serves in these capacities because he has passion and influence and perseverance. And there are volunteers that I'm meeting who are equally committed some people who have committed to bringing a home-cooked meal as often as one Sunday every month of the year. There are also some folks who serve food or cook at the barbecue in whatever weather conditions, one Saturday every month. And I wish I could stand here before you today and say that I signed up to help Manny because I was one of those faithful volunteers. But to be honest, I didn't know what the simple feast was after being part of this congregation for seven years, and I have never contributed food to it once. We've done better on the barbecue front. My husband and daughter have served food there twice. Without a shadow of a doubt, the ministry to our homeless brothers and sisters has absolutely nothing to do with my perseverance, and everything to do with the faithfulness of many and those, those key volunteers who tirelessly keep on giving. But they need more. Not one-off commitments, although no one will turn away any meals that you bring, but the faithful, regular, long-haul relationship-building commitment of showing up week in, week out, month in, month out, 52 weeks a year. That's how the injustices of marginalization and poverty are fought in this community. Am I trying to make you feel guilty? I'm not gonna say no. <laughs> we belong to Ecclesia. We like to talk about how our church serves the poor in our community. And I know that there are those of you sitting here who give astronomically 
of your time and of your money and of your resources to the church. We saw the photo of those bags that were given to the people in Venezuela. There is incredible generosity in this congregation and we honor and are grateful for those contributions. But there are those of us who need to ask ourselves honestly, if we are part of working towards ending the injustices in the area we do have influence and power in, in a way that is costly, potentially sacrificial, with a commitment that might make it start to feel like a marathon and possibly even seem embarrassing and overdoing it in the social circles we belong to. Fourthly, I aspire to be a biblical teacher who can one day confidently stand in front of you and say, in the original Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, but today I'm introducing a word in the original Afrikaans, the word padkos. Literally, this is translated as food for the road, that which gives us sustenance for the long journey ahead. In South Africa, at least in the time when this word was coined, there weren't gas stations every few miles where a traveler could stop and get a coffee or some snacks to fuel their journey. I think here it's known as Bucky's. <laughs> if a journey was going to be long and possibly tiresome, a long haul trek, pad course was always provided by the driver. What was it that sustained Wilberforce for the long haul? I believe it was an ongoing combination of spiritual disciplines and community. If discipline can help us to attain power, the spiritual disciplines can ensure that we are able to let go of that power. Prayer and fasting daily, if not even more regularly, will before set aside time, both on his own and with those in his inner circle. This recentered their purpose, renewed their vision for the day-to-day -day struggles they were going to face. And scripture, Wilberforce made a habit of reading and often memorizing scripture. He was known to recite Psalm 119, all 176 verses of it on his way home from work every day. Large parts of the Bible were committed to his memory and did the deep work of encouraging, challenging, and empowering him. And he took time to rest. He wrote the following about having a day off from work each week. I was for a little intoxicated and had risings of ambition. Blessed be to God for this day of rest and religious occupation, wherein earthly things assume their true size and comparative insignificance. Ambition is stunted and I hope my affections in some degree rise to things above. And then the people around him, Wilberforce relied on a solid community known as the Clapham sect. He was far from what we now call a lone ranger. This community was considered to be many to be an embarrassment because of their ideas about helping the poor and abolishing slavery. This community was a deliberate creation. They lived physically near one another and would often gather for prayer and for breakfast. 
Wilberforce was the first to acknowledge that what he did, he did not do alone. As a group, they would do whatever was needed to carry that baton toward the finish line. First, God was behind every battle, and secondly, the living community of believers were in, involved on every level. In conclusion, Wilberforce, just like many of us here, have come face to face with amazing grace that God gives when we recognize the truth of who he is and take hold of the responsibility and the power that he gives us as his children to reign over this world. Do we look around and see fruits of that power to be undeniably described as flourishing? Are we certain that what we put our efforts to are working both for the glory of God and for the good of man and toward that end, commit ourselves to the long haul? And can we humbly recognize that what sustains us is a commitment to the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and fasting, and that it's a work always done, connected to community and rooted in Christ, our liberating King. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.